It is so good to be with you, and I appreciate your pastor. More than appreciate him, I love him and his lovely wife and family. I've learned, Jesus said, narrow is the way that leads to life. And it is so true that as you are on this road to life in Christ, there is a narrowing that takes place in your life. You move from quantity to quality. It's not only true of clothing and shoes and restaurants, but it's especially true of relationships. You move from quantity of relationships to quality relationships. And it's the quality relationships that have longevity because those are the relationships that are forged in the crucible of crisis and still last. A friend is someone who knows all about you and still likes you. And I can say that your pastors are friends of my wife, Karen, and I. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we realize that no matter how great the preacher, the teacher, the singer, it's still the ministry of the Holy Spirit who touches our hearts and our minds. So we ask for that ministry today that you would touch our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to comprehend your truth. Because we know that it's truth that transforms and changes lives. So bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. For those of you who are here for the first time, not for those of you who snuck back in from the previous services, I bring you greetings from our congregation in... Brooklyn, New York. Actually, we have several campuses now. Um, our congregation, we're excited about our growth. I bring you greetings from my lovely wife. October 1st, we celebrated our 46th wedding anniversary. Praise the Lord. We got married when we were eight years old. Arranged marriage. I bring you greetings from my seven sons because we wanted a daughter. <laughs> and it was up to my wife. We may have 11 sons and one daughter, but seven sons was it for me. And I bring you greetings from my, 12 grand, my 24 grandchildren, I'm sorry, 12 girls and 12 boys. And I will tell you, that's what I say when I think about it. Wow. <laughs> say it, say wow. Now say it backwards. <laughs> Very good. This year we also celebrated 40 years of ministry, four decades, of serving the kingdom of God and providing leadership. I was a banker by trade for 10 years, and then in 1975 had my epiphany. I went to a meeting upon invitation. My wife and I went. A guy named Nicky Cruz was there, and he shared his story about the gospel of Jesus Christ and how it changed his life. And that night, something deep and profound happened to me. I met the Lord Jesus and surrendered my life, my work, everything to him, and I've never looked back. This is my last stop. I'm not searching. This is... It. 
And I'm glad to be here with you, and I can share some things with you that will help you in your Christian faith, and your Christian walk. Christianity is not lived in a vacuum. It is lived in the world. And the greatest challenge is how we translate our faith into a world that is often antagonistic to our faith. I want to do two things today. Remove a block that may be present in your thinking about God and then introduce you to a level of understanding His love for us. Now, it was announced in the second, in second service that I would continue a message that I was sharing in the second service. That's not going to happen. <laughs> so this is fresh and new. So I've done three introductions today, one at each service, but I'm sure you're going to get something out of it. I'm in the process of writing four books at the same time. Pray that I will finish at least one of them as soon as possible. <laughs> and the book that I want to speak to you from today is called The Four Pillars of a Blessed Life. It makes four simple statements as pillars, foundational statements. Four statements that if you're not convinced of, you're not going to have a healthy relationship with God. In fact, you won't have a healthy relationship with yourself or others if you're not convinced of these four things because they are foundational to a free-flowing, wonderful experience in your walk with God. But first, I want to clear up something in your thinking and in order to do that, I want to introduce a word to you. But before we put it up on the screen, how many of you, since you've been a Christian, have done things or said things that you just know upset God? Anybody? I'm not raising my hand with you. I was just, <laughs> I was just showing you what to do. So how many of you that are somewhere along the line in your Christian life, maybe yesterday, got God upset? Raise your hands if that's true. Okay. How many of you have never upset God? Okay. We need to find out what they know. I ask that question because it's very real in our thinking, because we know God is holy. We know that God has certain moral standards, rules of conduct and behavior that come out of his holiness. So we can see how violating those standards are not consistent with who and what he wants us to be. The problem with that is that if we think that our actions can create this kind of emotional disposition in the mind and heart of God, 
then it can deeply and profoundly interfere with our relationship with God. Because when we don't have a clear understanding of his nature, and God's nature is love, life, and light, the nature of someone or something is its inherent characteristics, its consistent disposition from which you can determine its actions, reactions, feelings, etc. Because the Old Testament, and even the New Testament to a degree, uses language that presents God in a certain way, we can walk away thinking about God and our relationship with God in an erroneous way. How many of you ever read that God is a jealous God? How many read that? How many got up to the section of the Bible where it says it repented God that he made man on the earth? That's Genesis. Did you get up to that book? <laughs> How many of you heard this language, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel? It grieved God that he made man on the earth. And we can go through a list of words that describe God in a way that can make us erroneously think that that's his character, that's his nature, and that's what we can expect from him. There's some very serious theological problems with that thinking. But it's something that we do. So why is it that the Old Testament has this language? I'm glad you asked me this question. It's because of something that the biblical writers did to help us understand God. But at the same time, what helped could also be a hindrance. So let me share with you a word that I'm sure is, to, is familiar with all of you even if you don't know how to spell it. So let's put it up on the screen. <laughs> Is it up there? Okay. Right under my name, right under a picture of me, go figure. <laughs> I'm sure you're familiar with that word. It's, it's, it's easy to pronounce. Anthropomorphization, or to anthropomorphize. And of course, anthros is where we get the word man. To morph is to turn into something. So the anthropomorphization of God is where we attribute to God human characteristics. But God is not human. Again and again, the scripture says, I'm not a man that I should lie. So we tend to judge God because of the language that's used as though he was human. But that language is simply given to give you an idea of how God would respond or would react if he were human. But he's not. Turn to your neighbor. Say, neighbor, did it ever occur to you 
that nothing ever occurs to God? I'll give you some time for that to marinate. The scripture says that God is impassable. I am the Lord and I change not. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Are you familiar with these passages? In the book of James, it said, every good and perfect gift comes down from God above, the Father of lights, in whom there is no shadow of turning, which simply means no variation in his personality and his character. God is who he is. And if you and I could, through our behavior, our conduct, impact God emotionally the way you may think you can, then it means he's no longer God. We are because we are in control of his emotions. But you can't control God like that. Otherwise, he wouldn't be God. Amen? So if he were human, he would be jealous of our attention given in idolatrous ways to other things and other people. But he's not human. He is spirit. He is impassable. He doesn't go through a, should I say, several stages to arrive at certain knowledge. He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. So he doesn't have to figure it out. He doesn't have to figure you out. Anthropomorphization is a practice that we use. How many have ever heard of a talking mouse named Mickey? <laughs> we know that mice can't talk, but what do we do? We ascribe human characteristics. What about Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck? Wait a minute, you guys don't watch cartoons? Give me some recent cartoons. See, this is where my grandchildren will help me out. Peppa Pig? BJ Max? PJ Max? Papa who? Pop the troll? You get the idea. <laughs> There's a wonderful book called The Giving Tree. How many have read that book? And what it does is portray a tree as human. It ascribes, it anthropomorphizes the tree, ascribing to the tree certain human characteristics. When I was in Secondary school, we read a book called Animal Farm by George Orwell. Some of you may be familiar. And animals in the book, the pigs, the mule, were all given human characteristics. We use the book to understand 
the French Revolution. Sometimes the book can be used to understand the Bolshevik Revolution and Russia. But again and again in our society, we anthropomorphize things. How many of you women have your own car, your own vehicle? Raise your hand high. How many have your own car? Okay. All right, somebody else's car that you drive. Okay, so you have your own car. How many of you ladies gave the car a name? <laughs> Come on, lift those hands high. What's the name of your car? Lucille Ball. Lucille Ball. So you call the car Lucy for short. I love this congregation. But notice, we will call a car her, he. We'll call nations. That's what we do. And it's to help us understand. But what helps us understand can hurt us. If we don't understand, it was simply an aid to help you understand. And instead, you arrive at a conclusion that God is jealous. What do you and I have that God could be jealous about? What do we have? The, the scripture says the cattle on a thousand hills belong to him. The earth is the Lord's. The world, they that dwell therein, the fullness thereof. All of that belongs to God, the whole universe. So what do we have that could possibly provoke him to jealousy? Nothing. What do we know that he does not know? I love the words of Jesus when he looked at his disciples. He says, haven't I chosen 12 of you and one of you is the devil? Wow. He knew. Even in his hypostatic state. We'll deal with that world next time I come. <laughs> we anthropomorphize. Don't you ever do that again. God loves you consistently. No matter what you say, no matter what you do, can the Holy Spirit be grieved in the sense that you engage in conduct that's inconsistent with his holiness and give you a sense, a feeling that you've broken some moral law or failed to measure up? Yes, it's built into who we are. Conscience, the voice of God. This is important, see? Because if I tell you that God loves you, and you don't understand what I shared with you about anthropomorphization, then you will judge God's love for you by human standards. <laughs> Within the 40 years that my wife and I have been married, you know, we've had our confrontations. I always win. Well, actually, <laughs> not true. Forgive me, Jesus. We've had those conflicts, right? And during those conflicts, I would purposely, the next day, knowing that she's angry and upset with me because of something I did and probably deserved, I would look at her and say, you love me? <laughs> and she'll say, 
I don't know. But I understand that she was trying to manipulate my emotions. Are you with me? Those are human standards. Because here's what we do if we get upset with someone. What do we do when we're upset with them? We withdraw our affection to create distance. Because in human relationships, distance is not measured in miles, it's measured in affection. So we withdraw affection to create distance in order to express our displeasure with whatever took place in the relationship. Amen? It's tough for guys because women judge men by our actions and themselves by their intentions. So they'll condemn the man and excuse themselves. So she'll say, this is what you did. But if I point it back, she said, but I didn't intend to do that. Forgiveness is a gift, and it's immediate. It is not something issued in installments. Turn your neighbor and say, this guy's good. This guy's really good. <laughs> this is important because this is what happens in human relationships, right? And guess what? If we don't understand this issue of anthropomorphization, we can take that same thinking and apply it to God. So when we think we've offended God by our actions or our words, right, we won't pray because we're concerned of what we've got to face with because he's upset with us. You don't control God's emotions like that. Love is not an emotion. That's why someone said, well, if you say God is impassable, but God loves, and, and if he doesn't experience emotions the way we do, then he can't love. And that's the problem. Love is not an emotion. Love is a commitment based on a decision. When Jesus said, love your enemies, he wasn't talking touchy-feely, warmy stuff. No, he was talking about making a choice with a certain disposition. And that's why it's faulty when we say, you know, I, I love this, I fell in love. That's problematic, because if you fell in, you can fall out. You love because you decided to love. You stop loving because you decided to stop loving. Love is the desire to benefit the one love at the expense of self. Because love desires to give. Love is always motivated by the best interest at heart for the individual love. So if you truly love someone, you cannot say you love them today and tomorrow get angry and say, I don't know, I don't love you. No, it's a decision, it's commitment. So when God says he loves you, when I say to you, God loves you,
That means he's fully and totally and consistently committed to your best interests. And that's why even when you don't understand, you can say, I know that all things work together for my good. Because you understand that God's love is consistent. You can't fail it as though you can surprise God. <laughs> Get that one out. I love to hear people pray. Lord, you, <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> can you imagine someone praying a prayer to God, telling him he does not know or understand their situation? If that is true, we're in trouble. We have to change the way we think in order to love and to be loved by God. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Did you get anything out of that? Yeah. I never forget Oprah had a problem with Christianity as we present it. Because she was in a service and she heard the preacher say, God is a jealous God. And her response was, well, how could God be jealous of me? What do I have for God to be jealous of? And that moment shaped her thinking about God and about Christianity. And she had to be exposed to other thinking in order to influence a correction of that one moment. No one told her that it was an anthropomorphization. So she said, why would I want to relate to a God who is jealous of me and claiming to love me? You understand how deep this can go? And look at the amount of influence that she has globally. It's called the Oprah effect. It'll help you become president or not. But notice how something like that can so shape and fashion or turn some away because they don't understand. That's why the Bible says wisdom is a principal thing. But in all your, get wisdom, but in all you're getting, get understanding. Get understanding. I want to share some things with you in the time that I don't have left about love. The four things that the book is written about is this. Number one, God loves you. Number two, God created you for a purpose. Number three, God designed you for fulfillment and achievement. And number four, God believes in you. I take the time to unpack these things. But I want to reflect on love. Because it's just so important to us. All right? Do I need to repeat that? Number one, God loves you. How many of you believe that God loves you? And I, I pray that after today, you'll see that love in a different way. 
All right? That you know no matter what, he's committed to you. Even when you mess up. Even when you mess up. Now, there are people who will heap condemnation and put guilt on you. That's people. That's not God. He wants you to experience freedom of coming to him no matter what you do, no matter what goes wrong, because he's fully and totally committed to your success. Let me tell you something. When we look good, he looks good. And he knows that. The nature of God is three things. God is love, God is life, and God is light. There are six essential, indispensable things that are necessary for a wholesome relationship with God. We're not going to get to them today, but I at least wanted you to know there were six. The human heart is designed for two things, love and truth. Love and truth. Our hearts are designed for that. We hunger for it. That's why you hear statements like, if you love me, you'll tell me the truth. <laughs> right? Turn your neighbor and say, he's talking about somebody you know. Love flourishes where there is truth. I'm going to try that again. See, these are very power-packed statements that you have to take time to reflect on. Love flourishes where there is truth. When there's truth in the relationship, it gives love the freedom of expression. Why? Because the first essential to a relationship out of the six, I'm going to give you one. Every relationship is based on trust. And trust is extended to the limit of truth spoken and no further. The moment you lie, you break trust. And it changes the nature of the relationship. Salud. <laughs> Did you hear what I said? Trust in the other person's character, consistency, commitment. Trust is essential. Because without it, the relationship falters and it creates an environment of insecurity and instability. When truth is present in a relationship, it creates the environment of trust. And that trust that comes from the truth allows freedom. So when the guy says, honey, I'm going to go hang out with my friends, 
Where are you going? Who? Where are you all going? What friends? <laughs> What's happening? She wants to be secured that he's telling the truth and that he's not going somewhere else, that he doesn't want her to know. And why does she say that? Because enough trust is not present in the relationship. You learn a few things being married for 46 years. But I'm going to say what I'm talking about. See? So, trust is critical. And when anyone in a relationship begins to question the intention of the other person or the credibility of what they're saying, then we know that trust has been undermined. And it needs to be restored. It's a good place to give God a good hand clap offering. I shared with you that love seeks truth, right? Love seeks truth. Love also shapes how we speak the truth. The Bible says speak the truth in love. Because if you speak the truth in a destructive way, in a revengeful way, then it's not going to do what truth was designed to do, and that is to heal. So even though love seeks truth, love also governs the way truth is spoken. <laughs> truth governs the way we love. God is not an enabler. An enabler is someone who provides the means and the support for someone else to persist in self-destructive behavior. God is not an enabler. So love speaks the truth about a situation or into a person's life. It speaks it lovingly, but love creates boundaries and establishes realities. Love. Love does not allow you to treat anyone else in a dehumanizing way. Because when you dehumanize someone, you strip them of their dignity. And once you strip them of their dignity, they are vulnerable to exploitation. All of this is built into what it means to love. God will not strip you of your dignity. God will not bring you under heavy guilt and condemnation and strip you of your joy to prove anything. That is not love. Listen to what people say. You know, God, I know this, why, why this happened to me, why this went wrong. God is angry with me. God's upset with me. How many, how many have ever heard that? Yeah, how many have ever said that? <laughs> Some of you are willing to tell the truth. Yeah. But if we have that impression of God, then our relationship with God is not going to be wholesome. And we're not going to feel free to go to him whenever, wherever, and under whatever circumstances there may be. God loves you 
no matter what. Can you accept that today? Can you embrace that today? Love is marked by four things. Can I give you the four? Oh. Love is marked by four things. Number one, benevolence. A disposition to do you good all the time. All the time, even when you don't deserve it. It's called grace. It's marked by benevolence. Secondly, love is marked by union. When you love someone, you want to be with them. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Lo, I am with you always. And that statement speaks of two things, proximity and participation. I'm with you. My presence is there, no matter where you are, no matter what you're going through, but also participation. I'm not just standing on the side watching you go through what you're going through. I'm actively participating and involved. So your need becomes my need. Your issue becomes my issue. Your pain becomes my pain. That's love. Benevolence. And what's the second one I just gave you? I'm just checking to see if you're listening. I said four, right? But I gave you two. Another mark of love is transparency. Transparency. And that means being visible, free from deceit, not hiding anything. And all sin manifests itself in hiding. When you truly love someone, you're willing to be transparent with them. You're willing to let them see what you're all about. You're willing to be visible. Fourth, vulnerability. See, transparency is allowing you to see what my life is all about. But vulnerability is allowing you to speak into what my life is all about. And there's some people that you can share your life with. Let them see what it's all about. But they don't have the authority to speak into what your life is about because they don't love you like that. They don't have that level of relationship with you. But when love is total, then these four things are present and at work. Vulnerability. It means you're open to constructive criticism. You're open to letting someone say, you need to change this. Otherwise, this relationship is going to collapse. Now, you may sit here and listen to all and say, my God. <laughs> Why love? (laughs) 
Why die on a cross? Motivated by love. Why go to that extent to express how much you love the world? Did Jesus do that? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The demonstration of benevolence, of union, of transparency, of vulnerability. We're out of time. But I hope that I poured something into you to make you think about God in a different way, to make you think about love in a different way, to make you think about individuals that you're in a loving relationship in a different way. You'll never worry about God getting mad at you anymore. Right? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's consistent. Now, if you feel bad when you mess up, good. Because that means you love him that much that you hate to disappoint him. Thank you, Oasis. God bless you.